they did wonderful things in those days, and not all the stories are apocryphal. They're true. Uh, they, the craziest are true. They undressed Bill Stern once, you know that? Oh, story. yes, I was there. Bill Stern was one of the great sportscasters of all times, and he was at NBC, I think, at yeah. the time, and somebody went out and to a studio tour, and they, while he's on the mic, they yes. removed his trousers. Oh, yes. Two gun. Now, there's nothing he can do. He is on the air. That was so Frank he, Reddick. Did. They're yes. pulling his trousers yeah. down, and he's saying, in the meantime, the score on the Browns. Right. They pulled his trousers off. Now they go out into the hall, and there's a studio tour, and say, by the way, you better drop by 8H. Stern's doing the sports. <laughs> and all these people walk by the window where he was sitting there in his shorts doing the thing. <laughs> Wonderful things like yes. that. Setting the script on fire was an old device, wasn't it? Too yes, hard? and then we did, uh, we used to do a lot of shows in front of an audience, all dressed up in evening clothes. I never knew quite why. Give uh, it a yes, dramatic yes, thing, flair, you know, the Philip Morris hour and things like that. And uh, we had a very dramatic director called Charles Martin, who used to give very dramatic cues and was, he was, you know, the Toscanini of the radio so the audience directors. audience would be aware he's and there. And he'd see him in his dinner jacket doing all of this. I used to repeatedly pretend to drop my script and lose my pages before it came to my time in order to spoil his act. You see, because I'd drop all the pages and we'd all be picking them up saying, oh, that isn't it, must be this and so on. Then while he was looking away, I'd get the real script out of my pocket, you see. That but, could be but, heart attack time. Yeah, heart attack time. But he gave us a rough time during rehearsals, so we felt he had it coming to us. But it was very funny sponsors in those days. Over and over again, radio actors would be barred forever, not allowed ever again to work on a show because it was a camel show and they opened up a package of Chesterfields or something. That's how seriously they took it at that, yes. at that time. Just the package in your hand, blackballed forever. There's in radio, a medium where nobody could see anything. I remember once when I was in radio in the Midwest, the favorite device there was for the... Because we didn't have a news editing staff or anything, we would just, you know, pull it off the teletype and the AP or UP would come in on the yellow sheets of paper and the radio announcer, Ed knows this, would tear it off and you go into the news and you read what the stories are. They would type in, they would get a, a sheet and in the middle of the news they would type in some horrendous, obscene story <laughs> that you didn't know the end of it until yeah. you were about halfway through and then of course your eyes would drop down and you'd say in um, oh. Cedar Rapids, Iowa today, Mr. William Scranton went into the barn and all of a sudden you'd see what's coming <laughs> and you'd say, we'll be back to that story in a moment, but first and you'd... <laughs> terrible things like that oh, yes. but you would be halfway through the story before you realized you'd been had have been listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. Mr. Welles and our guest will be back with us in just a moment. Meanwhile, you may have noticed earlier in our program that in speaking of Campbell's chicken soup, I referred to it as homey. Now, that's exactly what it is, old-fashioned and homey. We had an announcer. I had for years, I had a show for Campbell's Soup which was called the Campbell Playhouse, and we had an announcer called Chappell. Ernest Chappell. Ernest Chappell had a very earnest oh, and dramatic voice, and he used to rehearse his commercials very seriously, and he had there was a running line for a year, which was, as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Now, I had been sent by somebody <laughs> reading a copy of the Poulterer's Gazette in which Campbell's soup was advertising for old roosters. 
Now, as a matter of fact, roosters make the best soup on very old chickens, but we didn't know that. We thought it was funny. So I had my cast every week in dress rehearsal while Chapel was saying, you like Campbell's chicken soup, we were saying rooster soup right along with him. And he would say, now, fellows, you know I'm going to go on the air and I'm going to say rooster. <laughs> He did. He did. I really believe it is. And so I say again, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Have it tomorrow, won't you? In 1934, Chicago was the center for radio production. Writer and director Willis Cooper created a program for NBC affiliate WENR that drastically altered the tone of horror. Cooper had been writing advertising copy in the late 1920s when he entered radio, working first as a continuity editor, then for NBC's Empire Builders. His idea was to offer listeners a late-night terror program at a time when other stations were mostly airing music. It emphasized crime thrillers and the supernatural. The first series of shows were 15 minutes and ran on Wednesdays at midnight to local audiences. It was called Lights Out. In April, the series expanded to a half hour. The following year, it went national. Cooper stayed on until 1936 when he left to write film scripts in Los Angeles. He wrote The Phantom Creeps and The Son of Frankenstein before returning for the final season of The Campbell Playhouse on CBS and The Army Hour on NBC. Then in the spring of 1947, a new opportunity arose in New York. Quiet Please debuted on Sunday, June 8, 1947 at 3.30 p.m. over the Mutual Broadcasting System. Quiet Please elevated the genre to high art. For the weekly lead, Cooper cast Ernest Chappell, the Campbell Playhouse announcer. He proved a natural, playing Scotsmen, oil riggers, drunks, and archaeologists. They were everyman who got tied up in the otherworldly. Few supporting voices could be afforded or deployed. Those few were part of New York's radio elite, like Frank and Claudia Morgan. The cast was told to play it straight. It resulted in an almost dreamlike study in horror, like on October 27, 1947, when Quiet Please presented Don't Tell Me About Halloween. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please. Written and directed by Willis Cooper and features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, please, for tonight is called Don't Tell Me About Halloween. Uh, I'm going to kill my wife tonight. Or maybe tomorrow night. I mean, I'm going to kill one of my wives. I better if something's going to happen to me that won't be good. Well, Halloween's almost here. Halloween's the deadline. And Candace has to be dead before Halloween. 
Only trouble is, I'm not sure I'll recognize her when she shows up. You ever been in Salem, Massachusetts? Place where they hanged all the witches? No, they didn't burn them at the stake. A lot of people think so, but they didn't. They hanged them. All except the man witch, old Giles Corey. They pressed him to death. Very unpleasant. Well, it was in Salem this particular Halloween that I met Candace. It was dark up there on the hill where the gallows used to stand. Dark and cold with a damp wind coming in off the sea. A few little lights you could see in the dusk only made it darker and lonelier and creepier up there. I remember how I shivered as I started down the hill to town. And I remember how I jumped when something that looked like a black cat jumped out of the shadows at my feet. Without thinking, I yelled, Who's that? My heart almost stopped beating because... Well, good evening. I'd been all alone up there. And then, all of a sudden, there was a woman standing beside me. You're the first human being that's spoken to me tonight. Who are you? I'm Candace. I... I don't know any Candace. You didn't, but you do now. You nearly scared me to death. Oh, I wouldn't do that to you. What's your name? Craig. You like me, Craig? What? Well, I don't know what you look like. I like you very much. Well, but I... Kiss me, Craig. Now... Kiss me, I said. <clears throat> you know, you're going to be a very nice husband for me, Craig. What do you mean? I'm not going to... Oh, yes, you are. When I say something's going to happen, it happens, Craig. But I... I'm not... Wouldn't you like to be rich, Craig, and have a beautiful wife? I am beautiful. You'll see. Wouldn't you like to be rich and wise and happy and live forever? Wouldn't you, Craig? Who the devil are you? <laughs> Why, that's a very apt way of putting it, Craig. Who are you? I'm Candace. That doesn't mean anything to me. I'm the witch they didn't hang, Craig. Well, she was right. I am rich. Whenever I need money, which hasn't been for a long time now, I ask Candace when she comes to see me at Halloween time. I am reasonably wise, I suppose. I'm quite an authority on American history, quite well considered at the university here. And while I can't say I've lived forever, I have lived 253 years. Now, that's right. You see, I met Candace on the hill above Salem in the year 1694, two years after Cotton Mathis stopped hanging witches. Yes, Candace has kept her promise. I remember the way she put it, standing up there in the early morning, watching the mists crawling along the ground below us. You'll not see me now till another Halloween. And I can't tell you what form I'll be in when I come to see you again. But if you see a strange bird or a lost dog, or any strange being at your door come Halloween, you say, who's that? And if it so happens the stranger's me, why then, I'll be home with you till the cock crows for morning. And I remember I started to speak, to ask questions, 
But she stopped me. For the time's short now, my love. And remember the words, and we've all the future before us. As long as I live, you shall live. And below us somewhere, a rooster crowed. And I was standing alone on the hill. And a yellow butterfly was rising in circles above my head. I watched it disappear into the first rays of the sun. No, I didn't believe it either. And yet, we were only two years away from the witchcraft trials, and whatever may be said today, the belief in witches didn't die as quick a death as modern historians would have you believe. I was there. I know. Besides, I had married a witch. Halloween, 1695. A stray dog lay on my doorstep, shivering in the rain. I don't like dogs. I was about to boot the animal into the street when I caught a look in its eyes. I yelled, who's that? Well, it's about time. I've been lying there on that doorstep, freezing and nearly drowned without a stitch on, and you stand there and look at me like some great fool. Get me something to put around me and stir up the fire before I take my death of cold. And I do believe you were going to kick me, too. Why did I ever see it, you? Candace, dear, how was I to know? Give me that quilt! Oh. oh, she was all contriteness and apologies in a moment. But I can feel that slap alongside my chops from two and a half centuries ago. And our first anniversary was a very pleasant one. I was rather glad I'd married a witch. It had its drawbacks, though. Despite wealth and growing wisdom, people around me in Salem grew old, and I seemed to stay the same age. I moved away, and the years went on. I moved away from Salem, and I moved away from Philadelphia, and I moved from Baltimore and Richmond and Savannah and a score of other places. I spoke to George Washington, and I watched Robert Fulton's steamboat chug up the Hudson when I was more than 100 years old and looked... 35. And every Halloween, I welcomed Candace home for a night. One year, in a farmhouse on an Illinois prairie, a red fox whined up my door. And it was Candace. One year, a blue jay flew down from a tree in Missouri. And another year, she came as a skittering little gray field mouse. And the year I came back to Wisconsin after the Civil War, a porcupine gnawed its way into my cabin on Halloween night... And one of its quills spiked me before I thought to say, who's that? And when Candace smiled at me, there was only a strand of yellow hair through the thick of my thumb. I remember she pulled it out. And it hurt. Years and years and years. Well, she's been a wonderful wife, but I never forget what she is. Once a year is getting to be enough. It was just 67 years ago tonight, before Halloween, you see. That was the first time she appeared before Halloween, 1880. Rutherford B. Hayes was still president then. Yeah, seems like yesterday. I heard something bumping against the front door, and before I thought, I called out, Who's that? I thought you were never going to call me. Darling, I didn't know it was you. Well? Huh? 
Don't people kiss their wives anymore? Darling, you, well, you surprised me. Suppose you surprise me. How come you're so early, dear? Oh, I just thought it would be nice to surprise you. <laughs> you certainly did surprise me. Did I? You certainly did. What's happened since last year? Why, uh, nothing much. That's so. Uh, what have you been doing? I've been away. Where? Craig, you'll be better off if you don't inquire too closely into my private affairs. Being married to a witch ought to be enough for you. I'm, I'm just... Interested, Candace. Like I'm interested in what you do when I'm away. What? I am interested, you know. I don't know what you're talking about, dear. You don't? No. Don't you ever get lonely while I'm away? What? Why, certainly. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about, Craig. I don't either. You forgetting that I'm a witch, dear? What? <laughs> you can't keep anything from me, Craig. Don't you know that? Why, I... Oh, I won't punish you, Craig. But you mustn't run around with red-haired girls. Why, I don't know what you... Oh, yes, you do. So I just decided to take that temptation away from you. Candace, what did you... Look over there at the window, darling. And I looked. And peering in the window out of the darkness was a frightened, tiny red squirrel its teeth chattering with terror and cold. She's still got her red hair, dear. Candace. Candace, did you do that to her? Of course, dear. No, no, don't try to rescue her, Craig. I've got other plans for your little girlfriend. What are you going to... Listen. Now come here and kiss me. Good. In March of 1948... CBS executive Davidson Taylor sent an internal memo expressing his interest in purchasing the Mutual Sustained series for CBS. You know, in the last 50, 60 years, I've gotten so I'm afraid to say who's that anytime. Taylor had a keen eye for talent, but nothing materialized. Quiet Please shifted to ABC in September of 1948, but never found sponsorship and went off the air on June 25, 1949. It's 67 years ago that she set the wolves on that poor little red squirrel. It was once Marjorie... I've forgotten her last name. But I haven't forgotten what she did to me. They arrested me for murder. Candace let me stay in jail a whole year. I waited till the next Halloween, 1881, till a little screech owl came and perched on the window.